Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us is Steve Hayes, who was supposed to be with us yesterday, but I sent my email to him through Lois Lerner, and I don't know what happened, Steve. I, I guess it got lost. It just crashed. My system crashed. That's you know, it. Gone. You know, a lot of people, not a lot of people, some people have speculated that the timing of catching this bad guy involved in the Benghazi attack was great and did the White House try to manipulate it. My theory, Steve, is there's so many crises and scandals at the White House, any day is a good day to catch a bad guy. <laughs> Well, that may be the case. I mean, it's a, it, it strikes me as a little too clever to, to think that one thing is distracting from another is distracting from another is distracting from another. But I do think, uh, on a more serious note, it's reasonable to ask whether we crossed some evidentiary threshold that allowed us to go and, and pick him up. I mean, we've been basically, as I understand it, monitoring more or less for, for uh, since September 11th, 2012. He's spoken as many people have pointed out, to a number of different uh, media organizations, given interviews, he's been quite open about what his role or in his uh, telling non-role in, in the Benghazi attacks were. So uh, I think it's fair to, to say what is it that compelled us to get him now? What was the opening that we saw? But the good news is that we've got him, and I think that's just really good news in general. And, and why did it take so long? That's those are all good questions. Who is this guy, and how important is he? Yeah, Ahmed Abu Qatala is a, a local Ansar Sharia leader. Um, I think he, you know, he he certainly. I think most intelligence officials I've spoken to believe played a role in the attacks. Um, whether it was a big role or a small role in those attacks, I think is yet to be determined. But uh, most people, there's surveillance footage apparently of him sort of directing people and, and uh, making sure that uh, that the attacks are carried out in a pretty systematic and efficient way. And I'm sure those will be introduced uh, in, in court if, if uh, they're admissible. Um, in the bigger scheme of things, uh, I don't think he's terribly significant. I mean, he's a, he's a leader of of that particular Ansar al-Sharia branch, which is in effect, I mean, you can make an argument that Ansar al-Sharia Benghazi, Ansar al-Sharia Derna, Ansar al-Sharia Tunisia have more overlap than they do have things separating them. And he's, he's a, uh, you know, a senior, mid to senior level official in that sort of constellation of, of bad guys. There are other people who played a role or whose fighters played a role in the Benghazi attacks who I'd be much more interested in in hearing from, uh, Muhammad Jamal would be one, uh, who was detained for some time in Egypt. We did not have an opportunity to question him. Uh, Sufyan Ben Kumu is a former Gitmo detainee who's, uh, thought of as sort of a, a, a really crazy, um, jihadist operator, uh, out of Derna. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear uh, about him and others, other senior leaders. Uh, in those networks, in those affiliates who have ties to al-Qaeda core and who operate at sort of a, a much bigger level um, than Abu Qatala does. You know, Steve, you just mentioned uh, Gitmo detainee, and Gitmo is rearing its ugly or handsome head, depending on your view. Uh, John McCain and others are saying, obviously, if you have a guy who is involved, uh, ancillary with al-Qaeda, who's been involved in attacks on America, you want to know who he knows and what else he knows. You take him to Gitmo and you get that information. But the White House has made it clear they're going to treat him like a federal criminal, like a kidnapper or a bank robber. Yeah, it sounds like the White House wants to sort of have it both ways. As I understand it, uh, they're keeping him on this this ship and will be engaging in intelligence interrogations with Abu Qatala 
for some indefinite amount of time. And on on the one hand, in a, in a, in a small way, that's an improvement. If you remember back to the December 2009 attempted bombing of the airliner over Detroit uh, by Umar Farouk Abdul Muttalib, the administration didn't place much of a priority on extracting intelligence from him in their interrogation of him. Now, it, it turns out that he gave up quite a bit initially and acknowledged that he had been trained and financed by uh, um, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and, you know, had some affiliation with the sort of broader al-Qaeda network. So we got that information. But my recollection is that we only interrogated him for 50 minutes, 5-0, before he was Mirandized. And the White House defended that, saying, oh, that was plenty of time. We got everything that was gettable uh, from him in that 50-minute time span. And even if he were the most cooperative uh, witness ever, you're not going to get everything you need to get in 50 minutes. So I give the White House a little bit of credit here for actually taking serious the, the obligation to interrogate, interrogate these folks for intelligence. They've done this once before. Tommy Vitor, uh, the former National Security Council spokesman, pointed this out to me on, on Twitter. They've done this before, so this isn't entirely new. But I think it's a positive development. I mean, like Barack Obama in 2009 thought that's not necessary. And Barack Obama, several years later, for as many different ways as I would disagree with him uh, on the conduct or as, as might be more appropriate, the ending of the war on terror, at the very least, I think it's an encouraging sign that he, he thinks we need to try to extract intelligence from these guys, even if we're going to do it in a very nice and gentle way. How much of a schizophrenia problem does uh, President Obama? Okay, let me rephrase that. Uh, not, but you know, you're a casual observer. You're sitting, read the newspaper, and you see one day we're so unconcerned that we released five Taliban commanders, and then you see a week later we've snatched up a guy from a fringier fringe group than the Taliban, and we've got him on a ship, and we're going to interrogate him because of potential uh, terrorist attacks. I'm trying to square those two into a circle. Yeah, there's no squaring it. I mean, this this is a totally ad hoc operation that we're seeing from the White House. There is no strategy. There is no plan. It's not hard. I mean, it's, you don't have to play much of a guessing game to believe, to, to see what Barack Obama and those around him believe about this broader war. They made it very clear uh, in the year plus leading up to the 2012 election, and they haven't backed off those statements. And remember, you have Barack Obama saying, well, I'll try to Corps was decimated. Al-Qaeda's on the run. They really didn't qualify those statements at all. John Brennan, uh, the, the president's top counterterrorism advisor, eventually the, the director of the CIA, gave a speech at the Woodrow Wilson Center in April of 2012, in which he spoke at great length about just how enfeebled Al-Qaeda had become under Barack Obama, basically minimizing the threat. He said, yeah, there may be an affiliate here or there who poses a threat to us, but Last, the, the, the 1990s was the decade that al-Qaeda grew. The last decade was the decade that uh, we battled al-Qaeda, and by the end of this decade, it'll be the end of al-Qaeda. And I don't think there's any sane person in the world who would predict that at, at the end of this decade we'll, we will be done with al-Qaeda. Nobody believes that anymore. Al-Qaeda has more territory today than the group has ever had at any point in its history. It's growing fast. It's adding adherence. Um, the ideology is spreading like a wildfire. 
um, this this war on terror that the president ended prematurely is back, whether he likes it or not. Uh, some smart-alecky radio host in Atlanta, who was sure name nameless, tweeted out today, Hooray, they caught the lead film uh, movie critic who uh, or organized the anti-video review in Benghazi on 9-11. Is the capture of this guy going to bring up the uh, the facts as we know them? In other words, is it going to refocus people on what really happened in Benghazi? And is that going to create problems for the White House, given how much information they gave out early on turned out to be untrue? If I had to guess, I would say almost the opposite will happen. I, I think that Abu Qatal is much more likely to tell a story that's pretty consistent with what the administration would like him to say. I mean, that is, he's going to say, look, this was a local demonstration. This is what he said, by the way, to the New York Times, to CNN, to others. This was a local demonstration. It sort of spun up out of control. People got angry. People got a little carried away. Yes, there was this attack. But he's tried to not only downplay his role, but downplay the significance of the attack itself. And I would not at all be surprised if we begin hearing almost immediately leaks from his interrogation sessions that uh, would seem to provide additional support for the case that the Obama administration made early. It's one of the reasons why I'm much more interested in, in hearing from people who are likely the planners of this attack than merely the ones who executed it. People like Sufyan ben Kumu, perhaps people like uh, Muhammad Jamal and others. Uh, I think they would be in a position to, to shed much more light on you know, the extent to which this was related to the protests we saw from Ayman al-Zawahiri's brother in, in Cairo on September 10th, whether it was related to the tape that we had from the al-Qaeda leader calling uh, to avenge the death of a senior Libyan al-Qaeda terrorist, if there was any real link or if these groups were actually operating somewhat independently. Uh, there's, there's plenty of circumstantial evidence to support the former. I don't think that uh, Abu Qatala, who we have now in our possession, is going to be in a position to shed much light about that. I, I don't think that he would necessarily be in a position to know that. Uh, one last question, not directly related, but somewhat related. Um, the uh, the you know, story of Lois Lerner and the emails which has asked us yet again to believe things about this White House that are very difficult to believe, has gotten worse today now that even more IRS people have had their email <clears throat> disappeared. All of it, their external email out to places like the White House and Senate Democrats, none of their internal email. You're in Washington. Are even diehard defenders of the White House buying this story? No, very few. I mean, it's hard to hard to find a Democrat who's willing to talk about it on the record, and, and uh, I, nobody wants to be seen defending this preposterous claim. I mean, look, stranger things have happened, right? Maybe it ends up being true, but it's hard to come up with a scenario in which the, what, the, what they're sketching out today ends up being something close to the truth. There are so many glaring uh, problems with the case that they're making, not least of which you had the IRS commissioner testify on Capitol Hill under oath that they had all of Lois Lerner's uh, emails archived. Secondarily, you have a request outstanding from the House Ways and Means Committee going back more than a year asking for those emails. If they did a search, which presumably they did reasonably quickly, for her emails and found that, that they didn't exist or some of them didn't exist, surely they would have just told the committee at the time they made that discovery that those emails didn't exist. So there, I mean, these are sort of first-order problems 
with the story that I think are going to be very hard for them to reconcile. Uh, but here's the problem. When they first found out they were missing, it wasn't a Friday at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, Steve. See, that's, the, that's your miscalculation. You know, Steve, there are three sentences that you know the people saying them never believe them. One, I think OJ's innocent. Two, I believe Bill Clinton never had sex with that woman. And three, I believe Lois Lerner's email story. I mean, you know the people are saying them don't believe them. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly right. And, and the, the real problem for... I think the IRS and the administration in this case is you can point to a number of different statements that they made, claims that they made, uh, or attempts that stories that they attempted to sell that have turned out to be categorically false. This is not, you know, matters of gray, shades of gray. This is black and white. The things that they have said have been false. I'm talking about, you know, rogue employees in Cincinnati were in charge. We know that's false. It was never true. There's no way that. That could have been true uh, when it was alleged. You go back to uh, a number of different ways that Lois Lerner was involved in first releasing this information, a put-up job at a conference. You know, One thing after another after another uh, among these, these stories has been demonstrated to have been false. And, and look, it's early. Maybe there's an explanation that, I can't, that I'm not thinking of yet, but it's really hard for me to, to understand how this is going to end up being true. Steve Hayes, thanks for joining us from Capitol Hill. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.